Appalachia. Appalachia is a very distinct word, and everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Moreover, though, whether it's right or wrong, it stirs up images of everything from indescribable mountaintop beauty, deep forest, and cabins in the wood to trailer parks, meth heads, extreme prejudice, and xenophobia. The fact that one word can bring up such a huge response is an owed to its far-reaching influence in society. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet into the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed what can only be described as horrendous, demeaning, and even downright unbelievable history as we are now learning every day is not exactly what we've been told and what was once thought to be nothing more than fairy tale is now coming to light as truth. I often hear references to the movie Deliverance or people making funny banjo sounds when describing the Appalachians. I, being born and raised in these mountains, know that nothing in fact could be more wrong or, in some cases, more right. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has been around longer than any place in the United States. In fact, far longer than the United States itself. We'll look into these mountains and learn about the good, the bad, and the ugly history that lies within them to this very day. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Thanks for coming back, my good friends, and give me a listen, if you will, as I tell you the true tale of the grand life of a Cherokee daughter of the Appalachian Mountains, the legend of Granny Dollar. Nancy Emmeline Callahan was born in Buck's Pocket, Alabama, and was the daughter of a Cherokee father named William Callahan and a half-Cherokee native Scots-Irish mother named Mary Sexton. Today, this area is known as Buck's Pocket State Park, which is a publicly owned recreation area located on Sand Mountain in the northeast corner of Alabama, two miles north of Grove Oak. The state park sits on 2,000 acres surrounding a natural canyon, or as some folks say, pocket, located in the Appalachian Mountain chain along South Salty Creek. The park is known for the sweeping views of its rugged, seemingly untouched landscape. The origin of the name Buck's Pocket has been variously attributed to the presence of large herds of deer. The legendary death of a buck who leapt from Point Rock after being trapped by Cherokee and a man named Buck Berry who used the area to hide from the draft during the Civil War. There's also a story dating back from the 1940s that holds that unsuccessful Alabama politicians go to Buck's pocket after being defeated at the polls. When they go there, what they actually do, well, that's not specified, but I'm sure that one could use your imagination. (laughs) 
Little Nancy enjoyed the games played by Native American children, including one called Dog and Fox, which is much like a combination of hide-and-seek and tag. Nancy also liked to pitch quoits, an activity similar to pitching horseshoes or maybe cornhole. She never attended a single day of school in her life. Nancy's father hunted game while the rest of the family raised corn and potatoes. On one occasion, after having killed a very large deer, her father appeared to be very sad and unable to eat. Nancy's mother, being concerned after persistent questioning, finally got to the reason for his distress. He said, I can't eat my meat. I fear my three poor children in South Carolina are hungry. I have a wife and three children in South Carolina, and I was forced to leave them there. Nancy's mother replied, well, why don't you go fetch them? There's plenty of room and plenty to eat here. Well, thus, Nancy's family soon included another mother and sister and two more brothers. The Cherokee were allowed to have more than one wife, and in Nancy's family, at least there appeared to be no dissension or jealousy. My father's hut was enjoyed by all, Nancy said. She remembered that her mother appeared as happy as ever, that the new arrivals and the children, and she had a big dirt oven full of baked potatoes and venison ready for them when they arrived. The two women labored together in raising the crops and caring for the family. Together they had a total of 26 children, including three sets of triplets born to Nancy's mother. This large family ate wild turkey, deer, and fish with vegetables, which included cabbage, pumpkin, and corn. Their corn was roasted with the shuck on. Johnny cakes sweetened with molasses and hominy were also common foods. Now, I'm sure that those of you who are listening in the mountains know what a Johnny cake is, but let me tell you those who may not. A Johnny cake is made much like a pancake, except that the batter is cornbread-based batter and not flour-based. Those who have ever enjoyed a Johnny cake know exactly what I'm saying when I say there's nothing quite like it, and I mean that in a good way. Hominy is another delicacy of the mountains and is also made from corn. The corn is dried and then soaked in lye or lime, which is an alkali. It's then washed to remove the bitterness of the lye or lime and reheated and served. Of course, I can say the same thing about hominy that is said about the Johnny cakes when it comes to just how good they are. Those of you who out there who have never tried either, well, you just don't know what you're missing. Nancy said that the oven used for cooking their family meals was made of red clay and was used under the shed outside the home. And this was a typical practice even to the 1930s as the heat from the wood-fired ovens as well as the danger of fire made it more practical for the oven to be outside. As the eldest child in a very large family, Nancy helped care for the and midwife the babies born into the family and tended her father's whiskey still all by the time she was 10 years old. Nancy recalled her father fighting in what she called the Florida War, which was actually the Second Seminole War that began in 1835. Ironically, at the time, Mr. Callahan was fighting for the United States government. His own nation was facing extinction from the very same government. 
in that same year, a small minority agreed to sell their Cherokee lands and the Treaty of Ecacha was signed. Although Chief John Ross, spokesman for the Cherokee Nation, proved that majority of people approved the tr- or opposed the treaty, which had not been signed by a single major chief, was approved and enforced by President Andrew Johnson. I'm sorry, Andrew Jackson. The Cherokee were ordered to leave voluntarily for the Oklahoma reservations with threats being made to forced marches for stragglers. Two years later, General Winfield Scott ordered Captain John Payne to build a log fort and stockade in southeast Alabama to hold all the Cherokees still in the area after they had been rounded up by the soldiers. The Cherokee were tracked down on the mountains and throughout the valleys of this section of the former Cherokee Nation. Nancy personally witnessed much of the forced march to the fort and some of her the hardships of the Cherokee, especially those about to give birth. She later related tales of the native women marching when one had to stop by the roadside to deliver a baby, and she would then be surrounded by a circle of Cherokee women while a midwife entered the circle to provide aid. After the baby arrived, it was wrapped in a blanket and strapped to the mother's back so she could fall in line and continue the march. For a time, the Cherokee rounded up in this area were herded into a local stockade, and some were placed in a dark round hole which had been dug beneath one of the rooms in the log fort and were fed through a hatch. William Callahan was determined that he and his little tribe would never submit to such humiliation. Nancy's aide at this time was about 13 or 14 years old. The Callahans trekked through the mountain wilderness to the west side of Sand Mountain to an area near the Tennessee River at what is now Jackson County. They were hidden in the black recesses of Saltpeter Cave, one of many such caves in the rugged terrain of this region. The brave hunter didn't venture out to bag game and the family was miles away from the productive corn and vegetable patches. So to keep the frightened fugitives from starving, Nancy crept out at night to search for something for herself and her family to eat. The resolute young Cherokee maiden managed to capture, discover, or even borrow enough food to keep her family alive. Now this was a very tall order to get enough for 26 people every day, but other families hiding in those caves fared far less. Well, and many of the babies slowly starved and their scattered skulls throughout the cave bore evidence over a century later of this pathetic result of a particularly sad chapter of our American history. William Callahan's pride, stubbornness, and courage had helped his family avoid the forced march to a faraway territory. But his violent temper, nature, and combativeness were to yet cause him to flee the home of his most tranquil and happy days. He had to leave after an altercation with a white man named Jukes, during which the Native American, his temper aroused by curses and false accusations, jumped on and bit the nose off of Mr. Jukes, and bit one of his ears off as well. Fearing that the Jukes family might retaliate by burning his house down, Mr. Callahan moved to Georgia and settled in Marthasville near Atlanta. Now, when Nancy was about 21 years old, she had to find a way to make money in order to 
help provide food for her many younger brothers and sisters now that one of the mothers had died, though it's not really specified which one it was. Was it hers or the one that joined them later? But she began hauling goods from Marthasville to the country stores near her home, a distance of about 30 miles. She made long trips over rough roads in a covered or tarpole wagon drawn by two mules. I don't think this was a significant distance to travel every day, but it would have taken six to eight hours to go one way. The wagon axles were greased and the mules hitched and unhitched and even fed by Nancy herself. Being, as she said, strong as an ox, she needed no help loading the goods at Kyle Brothers Wholesalers and unload the cases of molasses, meat, salt, powder, lead, gun caps, shoes, dishes, and wagon tires, which she hauled for some 15 or 20 years. She was never robbed or harassed in any way during the many trips she made all by herself. During this period, she became engaged to a storekeeper's son named Thomas Porter, but the Civil War broke out and ended her first romance as Thomas joined the Confederate Army and was killed in battle. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend with Larry Bentley. When the Union forces first reached Atlanta, Mr. Callahan sent his daughter word not to go in for more goods, but stay home with the children. From 30 miles away, the loud roar of cannon fire was clearly heard by the family. She declared in 1928 that she would never forget that battle sound. Mr. Callahan was killed during the Battle of Atlanta after having fought for the Confederacy for several years. After the burning of Atlanta, Sherman's march took him through the native family cornfields, which he burned as they were in roasting ear. Nancy then assumed full responsibility for providing food for the other fatherless children. The phrase, in roasting ear, meant ripe and ready to harvest, by the way. Nancy remained single for over 40 more years. In her 70s, she married Norman Dollar and moved to the Mentone area. She became known as a healer, midwife, and fortune teller. Twenty years later, her husband died. She managed to buy his tombstone by selling her cow. By this time, she was known as Granny Dollar, and at the tender age of a hundred, she found herself homeless. As she had spent her life taking care of others, now there was no one to take care of her. As she walked along a path with her faithful dog, Buster, she came upon a cabin where she settled. Her last years were spent on Colonel Milford Howard's property. The ruins of her cabin are almost hidden from DeKalb County Highway 156 on the south side of the road a short distance off DeSoto Parkway. The chimney still sands and vines have taken over the decaying ruins. Across the paved road, a dirt road meanders up a hill to the former site of Colonel Howard's Master School. Colonel Howard is responsible for much of the legend surrounding Granny Dollar. In 1928, he wrote a feature story about her in the Birmingham News. He met Granny upon his return from a long stay in California. The ever-resourceful Granny and Buster had taken up residence in his cabin. 
Although his own financial situation was precarious, to say the least, Mr. Howard agreed to provide for Granny Dollar, which included a bit of fat meat in her greens and biscuits, her backy for her ever-present corncob pipe, and rations even for her engine chickens, as they were known, and Buster, too. Buster was very old himself, having reached the age of 20. He'd long served as Granny Dollar's faithful guardian, ever ready to attack anybody who approached either him or his mistress. He had scared so many people and had even bitten several people. Buster was despised by the neighbors as a mean and vicious beast, but Granny loved him. Preparing for her own demise, Granny Dollar had saved $23 toward a tombstone, but the money was stolen from her. From this time until her death, the legends grew around Granny Dollar. She enjoyed relaying the stories told about her and encouraging her telling. She continued telling fortunes and managed to survive by growing chickens and vegetables and by the generosity of friends and neighbors. Another race has taken our fields, our forest, and our game. Their children now play where we once were so happy. The trouble with the white race, she said, is that they lay up so much for old age that they quit work at 50 or 60 years. And when they stop working, they get out of touch with nature, all wear shoes in summer, which keeps them from God's good earth. Then they begin to fail, and they soon die. One evening, some pranksters tried to upset Buster, and Granny chased them away with a Indian war whoop is what it was known as that could be heard from miles around followed by a command to sick em, Buster and old Buster ran them all the way back to the main road guests from miles around enjoyed sitting with Granny Dollar and hearing her stories and adventures she was also able to read her visitors palms once she helped a friend find silver in a cave that had been hidden there by Indians before the Trail of Tears. Three years to the day from the publication of a progressive farmer's article about Granny Dollar, the January 28, 1931 issue of the Fort Payne Journal announced her death. She was over 100 years old at the time of her first interview in the January 28, 1928 issue of the same publication, but she remembered the early days of her childhood very well. People in the community arranged for her burial beside her husband in Little River Cemetery, and Colonel Howard delivered Granny's eulogy. After Granny's funeral, nobody wanted Buster, and he, not conceiving the finality of her death, was just as good with that as they were to perfectly content to go home and wait for Granny to come back. When neighbors went to check on old Buster, they found him gnawing at the door and baring his gums but once held teeth as if preparing to bite him. After he refused to be coaxed or removed from his home to even eat, the local mountain folk decided it would be more humane to just chloroform old Buster and then allow him to grieve himself to death or just starve. When Buster's body was buried, another funeral was held with Colonel Milford W. Howard, famous lawyer then, congressman and author, eulogized Granny Dollar's faithful dog, Buster. In 1973, largely through the efforts of Annie Young of Fort Payne, Granny's tombstone was finally erected. 
the head of a Cherokee woman is inscribed at the top and daughter of the Cherokee is written at the bottom next to the dates 1826 to 1931. The ghosts of an old mountain woman and her dog are sometimes seen walking through the woods around the rural waterfall near the ruins of the old cabin. Some say Granny Dollar's ghost was looking for the thieves who stole the money she set aside for her proper tombstone. She was 105 years old when she died in January of 1931. There's no doubt that Nancy Emmeline Callahan Granny Dollar was what is known as a true Appalachian character. This friendly old lady who lived on Lookout Mountain about nine miles from Fort Payne, Alabama, enjoyed reminiscing and talking to visitors just as often and as long as they wished to come by wherever they come from. I hope you enjoyed our little story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast and don't forget to subscribe. Please go over to our Patreon page patreon.com and search Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Give it a look. If you'd like to join, there are several levels to choose from, starting at Mountain Boomer all the way up to Appalachian Hillbilly. Or you can go to Facebook group Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend podcast, where we can discuss anything Appalachian or whatever else you'd like to talk about. There are just no limits. I'll be back soon with another Appalachian Murder, Mystery, or Legend. I'll see you then. Thank you again for listening.